The Carrington Event, also known as the Solar Storm of 1859, was a powerful geomagnetic storm caused by a Solar Coronal Mass Ejection, or CME, that hit Earth's magnetosphere and introduced the largest geomagnetic storm on record. The associated white light flare was observed and recorded by British astronomer Richard Carrington. The storm caused strong auroras and wrought havoc with telegraph systems. But if a solar storm of this magnitude occurred today, it would cause widespread electrical disruptions, blackouts, and damage to the electrical grid. It could even cause satellites' orbits to decay and fall from the sky. But could it wipe out humanity in a holy fire? Well, in the 2009 film Knowing, the sun is the ultimate cosmic death ray. Directed by Australian filmmaker Alex Proyas, this action mystery drama blends science and faith. We follow John Kostler, a MIT astrophysics professor, played by Nicolas Cage, as he discovers a mysterious letter from the past containing a list of numbers. The numbers are prophecy of disaster and knowing is everything. To Dead End, a disaster movie podcast hosted by a group of friends who have been known to have some hot dogs on the run. I'm Matt Bluma. I'm Rob Boucher. And I'm Pat McCaffrey. How's it going, guys? Great. Beautiful Can't day. Complain. It's not raining. Yeah, Rain. it really warmed up pretty quick. Rained for about 24 hours yesterday. And snow tonight, I think, right? An inch? Yeah, a bowl inch. Blue when I see it. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. I'm not shoveling it. It'll melt. Snowmobile trails will probably not be open, so nothing to get too worked up about. That is probably a safe bet. You get your last ice fishing in this year? Oh, yeah. It's a good time. Better than the last two years. I mean, they were all good times, but... We averted disaster for the first year in three or four years, right? Yeah. No, No wind, rain, or, well, open water. Yeah, I was going to say that one year it seemed like it uh, was too warm to do ice fishing. Well, I mean, yes and no. <laughs> it was too warm for too long before we went. <laughs> but yeah, didn't lose any fishing gear this year and it was pretty calm. Actually got some fish. Well, I don't know if I'd say some fish. Okay. <laughs> nothing, you, nothing you can keep. One was too big to get through the hole. <laughs> so we only got one. Made up for the many, many boring hours of no fish and no biting but still a great time well today on dead end we're going to be talking about the 2009 film knowing starring nicholas cage did either of you see this when it was in the theaters definitely no i did not no i don't even remember it being in the theaters yeah i had never (laughs) even heard of this well in a flashback to 1959 with this weird little girl frantically writing down numbers that are going to be put into a time capsule. You know she's a weird little girl because they show her staring at the sun in the beginning of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> you don't uh, you do not do that? 
You know, just regularly stare directly at the sun? You know, only with, like, binoculars, but then I put a little solar filter over it, you know. <laughs> yeah, the opening of the movie, I actually, I, I, I thought it was sort of setting up to be a pretty good movie at the beginning. It, uh, it had me intrigued with the, the crazy little girl and the, the, the what was it, the, the time capsule, which was basically an old soda keg. Cornelius. Yeah, I don't think I remember doing any time capsules. I think we might have, but it, we definitely didn't bury it in the ground, like, you know, underneath, like, a manhole-looking thing, like they did in the movie. I think ours was, like, a shoebox that probably got thrown away at the end of the year. I think I did a few, but I forgot where I buried them. <laughs> Hopefully nothing too uh, important or valuable in those. No, I don't think so. Someone might enjoy it, though. Yeah, so after they show the time capsule being lowered into the ground during this big ceremony, the Lucinda, the girl who wrote the list of numbers, is missing. And we do this like kind of creepy night scene of all the people searching the school to trying to find her. And as the teacher goes down into like the basement, she finds her in this like tiny little closet clawing at the backside of the door with like blood on her hands and like creepy kind of crowd talking horror movie sounds going on yeah her in the closet definitely was like a very horror movie sort of feel to it i think she had like bloody fingernails and stuff from clawing at the door right looking like a hungover day of hammer and nails must have been a monday <laughs> <laughs> This was when I first kind of started losing, like, you said the beginning started off pretty strong. The, like, horror movie cliche kind of started to, like, yeah, I, thin I already right and away. I, I kind of gave it a break on that to see where it was going. And then we fast forward to present day Nick Cage, right? And his uh, little kid. In the backyard with their uh, telescope, of course, because... He's a scientist, so he's got to have his telescope. Looked like he had the uh, lens cap on his finder scope, which seemed kind of, <laughs> I don't know. I didn't even notice incorrect. that. I believe you, though. Based on other elements in the movie. Cuts down on light pollution. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't let any of that pollution in. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so Nicolas Cage is John, and he's with his son in the backyard, and his son is very smart, you know, right off the bat, like pulling out the numbers for how many possible planets there are and how many life forms could have evolved. And we start with a really like yeah. bad dialogue, I think, pretty uh, early on. You know, what did he call the hot dogs? Stats famous Sunday night hot dogs on the run. He just grills out hot dogs and this kid runs away or what? Well, remember, his, he's now a vegetarian. And, yeah, just the back and forth between, like, this kid and Nicolas Cage. I don't know. It doesn't seem right. There's something off about it. So he's got a brown rabbit. Pet rabbits? Pet rabbit. I knew people that had pet rabbits, never had a pet rabbit. But, yeah, his kid goes in to watch his favorite discovery program on TV. You know, after Nick Cage, you know, tucks him in and kind of mentions the same thing about mom and like life and death stuff already pretty early on yeah he's generally pretty gloomy from the beginning 
And this, I think, too, is where we first noticed that he, uh, Caleb, the kid, has a hearing aid, which was an interesting choice, I think, for one of the main characters in this movie. But yeah, after he tucks in the kid for the night, uh, Dad's going to drink some hard liquor and blast his classical music. <laughs> I did notice that. He does have a killer stereo. When he, like, sits in this, like, you know, pretty, like... I don't want to say run down, but very empty house with like no decorations. And, you know, when he's sitting in the chair with like the speakers in front of him, it looks like that artwork that was on like the emation recording material. <laughs> oh, yeah. the I know what you're talking about. I had some some blank CDs back in the day that had him on it. Looking around uh, my blank walls and huge speakers, I'm starting to think I should put some some stuff on the walls. Based on what you just said. Yeah, I've been over there. There's no art on your walls, Pat. <laughs> no, there's large speakers. <laughs> How about some cats? No, there's plenty of those. Why, are you looking for some? No, no. I'll bring them over. Free delivery. So after the first night where John doesn't uh, sleep in his own bed, uh, he goes to work and he's an MIT professor. And his class seems to be like astrophysics, but there's a lot of philosophy talk for a science class. So he begins talking about like randomness versus determinism, but he's like, you know, it's Hollywood dialogue. So they've kind of mixing up like causality and, you know, anastropic principle, all these things. And he just boils it down when one of the students asks him, like, what do you believe professor and he says shit just happens which definitely started to make me like oh yeah it's you know pretty terrible dialogue i'd say so that that part actually struck me as like oh man this guy's just super hung over from his like couple of huge cups of liquor the night before sitting in front of his stereo you know the, the shit just happens response well, it's like eh, i get yeah, it yeah and you're right like the night before he was staring at like the you know the gift or present from like i assume it was his dead wife that's like sitting on the you know bookshelf you know oh yeah yeah they cut back to that a few times it's like a little wrapped up box he hasn't opened right yeah that yellow package with the bow then they're walking around drinking their lattes talking about uh well phil's telling john that you know ph double d's is in town is it ethical to say things like that about your sister-in-law what factual it's peer reviewed i mean phil the bro science (laughs) professor dr bro if to use his uh his preferred name dr bro and she told phil that she thinks john's intriguing but phil said i thought that was code word for gay yeah apparently phil's trying to uh, fix up john with another woman after you know he lost his wife but before he can even accept another dinner date um he realizes that he's missing his son's uh, school ceremony, and we jump to the school with the kids singing for this time capsule opening. Yeah, they're hauling this thing out of the ground because it's been <clears throat> 50 years since the crazy little girl and her classmates buried this thing on the ground, right? At least, at least they knew where they buried it, you know? <laughs> the funny thing is, in the beginning the where they bury it, it's a parking lot. And then they're all sitting there in the grass, and then they pull it out of there, you know. They must have moved the parking lot. That's what I was thinking, too. Like, they're burying this thing in the parking lot. They're, 
thinking this parking lot asphalt's going to last 50 years before they tear it up. That's some good uh, school parking lot um, continuity check in there, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> Got to make sure they, uh, they don't miss anything like that. I actually didn't notice that. I thought at the beginning they buried it like right in front of the, the steps that go up to the school. And then at the end, or the, the when they pull it out, I, they were kind of in like a park setting, weren't they? Well, I think it was still by the school there, but then they like walked a couple football fields away to open it. <laughs> so yeah, at the ceremony they have uh, Mrs. Taylor, who is now a much older... But she's an old lady. I mean, look at her. She's old. Too old. <laughs> Yeah, so the kids are all given these sealed envelopes which contain drawings from 1959. And Caleb, you know, John's kid, of course, gets Lucinda's uh, letter, which is nothing but numbers. Front and back. You think that was a tabulated spreadsheet, Pat? <laughs> But yeah, so every time we've seen the numbers so far, you get this, you know, crowd whispering effect kind of in the background. And with Caleb, he thinks it's his hearing aid that's making the noise, which, again, like I said, it was an interesting choice to make him have this, like, hearing aid and the disability. As Caleb's getting his letter, you know, John is talking to him, and Caleb says, can he go to a sleepover, but John... Is shutting him down. Doesn't seem like he lets the kid do much. I just like it how Priscilla or Miss Taylor, or whatever, she hands out a letter to every kid. Like here, this is fifty years old. Go run around and see what it's all about. Don't share it with any of the adults or. Yeah, that is kind of a contrived, it seems. But yeah, they're back home. He's his hearing aids on the table, and yeah, that's when he's talking about uh, the sleepover and. Oh, John says, maybe. And he's like, oh, that's a no. I'll say this. Growing up, whenever you ask your parents something and they say, maybe, or I'll think about it, that means no. Oh, yeah, definitely. That was like standard issue. I'll think about it, or maybe was always a no. Looks like I'm playing Super Nintendo. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Caleb, he, he kept it. He said, you know, what if, what if it means something like it's a map or something? You know, John kind of puts his kid to bed and thinks about it pours himself a stiff short glass of samuel colburn <laughs> what is that is that a scotch <laughs> i have no idea but they make a point to show that he drinks a fair bit of it he didn't have as big a glass as he thought <laughs> <laughs> so then he overflows it and sets it down on the on the letter of course you know don't want to get that coffee table stained or anything and then he notices he got put it on this 50-year-old letter. But then the ring circles these numbers, 9-11-01-2996. And he starts thinking, hey, I'm going to rip this whiteboard off the wall and bring it over here. Write all these numbers down and figure it out. So he figures out there's uh, dates that work out, and the numbers after that are death count. Yeah, and as he's going through the list, he's kind of going just down the Google, you know, search rabbit hole. See him on his iMac, which, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure Rob still uses one of those. <laughs> it's recording right now. 
Tried and true. Yeah, it was funny looking back because, I mean, this was from, what, 2009? So that's probably, like, well, pretty close, yeah? <laughs> 2008. That's my Ooh. iMac. He's got an upgrade on you then, yeah. Oh, he's got the 24-inch, too, so I got the 20. <laughs> so, yeah, he sees that, like, the date and the number of fatalities, you know, keeps repeating through history with all these events that, you know, flash through on the screen of his computer, which I really didn't, like, take a look to see if these are all real events, but I, you know, assume you could find plenty of events of varying amounts. But they almost always seem to be kind of medium to small size disasters. The biggest one I saw in there was the 2004 uh, Indian Ocean tsunami, and that was a huge number. That was, you know, more than 100,000 deaths. Yeah, I didn't honestly pay that close of attention because they just kind of sort of flashed like a bunch of, you know, newspaper articles or whatever that showed dates and numbers. But I don't remember there being any like real huge ones other than the tsunami. But yeah, since we had the time capsule and all that in the beginning, when he sees the date 10-27-2008, you know, he starts freaking out because that's, you know, just a couple of days away. And, you know, he drops his glass of whiskey and it shatters on the ground. So the next day he tells his professor buddy about all the numbers and, you know, it's pretty crazy to have all these, you know, three more predictions that, are coming up but his friend is you know just discrediting him as you know a nut looking at numbers yeah dr bro dismisses it like right away you know just sort of says like this is all coincidence and you're kind of looking for something yeah those numbers mean something what do these numbers mean the numbers mason what do they mean i don't know yeah that's when they see the second like every event has another number associated with them or with it and I don't know, it still seems like pretty weak uh, argument against it. Like the coincidence of having a set of numbers that's that predictive in sequence is like astronomically low of just randomly writing that out. Yeah, so then he shows Phil his manila folder full of every printout of every disaster and the death totals and then he, he shows him uh one of them's his uh where his wife died yeah the fire well with just more questions uh nicholas cage then starts investigating further and like tries to talk to the old teacher that was mrs taylor would you like a glass of iced tea <laughs> i'll pour myself some hooch so, Miss Taylor talks about um, the scared little girl, Lucinda, and remembers the number, you know, from 50 years ago, all these numbers she wrote down. And she called her, like, really troubled and just sort of dismissed it as, like, you know, weird kid being weird kid, right? Well, and, like, what we know later that Lucinda's life ended up being, like, I wonder if the teacher knew more and just didn't tell him. Maybe. I don't know. I mean... She was also, like, what, a 90-year-old, like, elementary school teacher? She's seen how many kids? Oh, how rude of me. <laughs> I didn't offer you iced tea. Yeah, they did, they kind of show her being a little, like, I don't know, not all there, you know? So after interviewing um, 
Miss Taylor, Nick Cage then uh, starts trying to get in touch with like the names of the janitors that pulled up the time capsule, and this is just like you know that's gonna just be a dead end, like <laughs> dead especially end. you know janitors from fifty years ago or whatever, <laughs> or the new guys. But uh, while this is going on inside the house, Caleb is outside, and a you know strange car rolls up. And some creepy voices, you know, are heard while a man gives him a smooth black stone and then they drive away. Yeah, this is where it starts getting real weird for me. It's like, what's going on? Have a stone, have an ear full of whispers. See you later. It seems really? promising at this point. Like, you know, the horror movie stuff, I don't know, the black stone was kind of cool. I know it later turned out to be almost meaningless. Spoiler alert. But uh, <laughs> it seemed intriguing at the time. <laughs> I guess a little bit, maybe. That's where that's where I really started to lose it was the the creepers and the smooth stone. Well, we have to do a little main character development. So John gets a visit from his sister, who's a nurse, and the whole scene is just exposition about John's like family drama and how. You know, his father was a pastor, and him and his father aren't really getting along. But it ends pretty quickly because he, like, kicks her out of his house and says that... You can't go on like this forever. Well, but he says, like, he has to get up early, and it's like, we know you just are going to go home and drink. Like, (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't even use words. He just uses his finger and points at the door. She's like, I'll say a prayer for you. He says, please, please don't. Yeah, I think it was established pretty early. I think it was established pretty early that, like, he's not very religious and his dad's religious, so this is, like, major conflict for the movie. Yeah, it's very clear that him and his uh, father have not spoken in a very long time and don't see eye to eye on things. So then he's watching the news all night, trying to not miss a thing. See what, yeah, he's see looking what for disasters. the next event, right? Yep. Yeah, which has got to be weird. Like, having a number, like you know the first day they might not have like an accurate count of fatalities for something happening but he's like 81 people die you know that's what he's looking for but he doesn't get it you know falls asleep again on the couch and he's woken up by a phone call from his son that's like you know waiting at school in the rain like needs a ride yeah i've fallen asleep on the couch before that's the kind of falling asleep he was doing Seemed like he like very much passed out and then like you know woke up to the needing to go pick up his kid in the afternoon. Yeah, what like three yeah, four definitely, o'clock? Definitely not wake. <laughs> definitely not. Definitely not waking up time. <laughs> well, he heads out on the highway, heading to school. He's stuck in traffic. There's a crash. What was it? A accident up up ahead. I think it was a eighteen wheeler. I don't know if they ever showed the vehicles, but some sort of traffic accident. Yeah, they show like the ambulance and the like the guy telling him to turn around and go away, right? Yeah, because Nick Cage the, is uh, definitely the guy that would get out of his car and ask what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seems like every movie's in that's that's his character. I'm gonna go check this out. But first, on his GPS, he notices the coordinates and they're the numbers that he's missing for the the date after the date and death toll. So that's why he Right, which fills in out. the the remaining numbers on the sheet, right? That that weren't like they were unknown that that didn't correspond to anything. It's the 
GPS coordinates. Yeah, latitude and longitude. So as he puts together that the latitude and longitude is, you know, the same in everything. Oh, yeah, that was in his car. Because as he's outside talking to the police officer, that's when the plane crash happens. Can we even call it a plane crash? Well, it's a I mean, full-blown, you know, real well-done yeah. CGI effect. <laughs> Jumbo jet dragon wing across the freeway. It looked like something out of a video game from, when was this made? 2009? Yeah, it was like a cutscene yeah. from a video game where they're like, look at our And not, not even a good one. <laughs> there was, I don't know, just too much fake fire. There was like a weird shininess that makes everything look fake. Many, many explosions. Yeah, it was Michael Bay, Michael Bay style explosions with like Jurassic Park 3 levels of CGI. Just really bad. The worst was that it was really indulgent. Like, a lot of times when you're going to use CGI, you shake the camera or you make it hard to see. Like, Yeah. Make, make people's brain trick them into it. Yeah, this oh, was, yeah. like, front and center. There was so much, um, you know, like, you would see people, like, running away from, that they, like, survived the impact somehow, and then they would get blown up. And the whole thing was just kind of, self-indulgent and terrible it's really bad my, my notes say mediocre and i was being too kind but yeah as nick cage you know is running through this like debris of a jet that's still on fire and people are apparently burning everywhere um that's when like it even gets worse because as you get like closer to it and like they would have you know people screaming and shouting and then like an explosion get them it just totally ruined all like suspension of disbelief I had. <laughs> well, then he starts helping someone, you know, and there's what, how many survivors? There's 50 plus survivors, it seemed like, running around. He's helping one person, and then like three paramedics come over and like push him off, like, don't help him. Like, like there's enough paramedics. <laughs> Wouldn't you go to the next guy and let him give it a shot? Okay. Well, after the plane right, crash, so after the really, <laughs> after the really, really, really poorly executed plane crash, we see uh, Nick Cage draped in a you know blanket, definitely doing the traumatized survivor look. And he goes home, sits in his chair, zoned out, and goes on a bender. Another late night number session, not just one. But he gets a couple of visits, you know, his uh, professor, bro, f friend uh, visits him and, you know, again, doesn't do much good for it. You know, says he doesn't believe any of it and, you know, says that he's traumatized from, like, his wife and all sorts of stuff. And now it's all, you know, making him cloud his judgment, which I think is always a bad thing to tell somebody. Yeah, I would think. I don't think anybody would ever respond well to that, telling them that their dead significant other is clouding their judgment. I mean, I can understand, like, after a traumatic event, not wanting to talk about it. But then, like, when he does, like, say his opinions, you know, like, he just has them basically, like, your opinions don't mean anything right now because your dead wife seems like the wrong way to go about it. 
That's when they could have <laughs> showed him over pouring a drink or smashing a drink or something instead of when they did before. Just a thought. What are we calling this? Well, I mean, he's he's drinking the whole time. Can't do a late night make the, uh, conspiracy theory numbers session without drinking. They make no qualms about the fact that he is a well. He's an alcoholic. He likes he likes his booze. <laughs> but after his uh, friend leaves, he sees the mysterious white guy in dark robes outside, and you know, yeah, the smooth the smooth stone guys are back, right? The whisper people. The whisper people. He sees through his submarine window. <laughs> the porthole. Skip ahead, and Caleb is, you know, having like a nightmare, it looks like, or a vision with more whisper people. And he looks out his window and he sees the forest that is around his house is all on fire. Which at first, this seemed just kind of cool. I was like, this is pretty good, you know, like showing him visions of like disaster and stuff like that. But then they show, like, all the animals burning, and it's really bad fire CGI again, and it just hurts it so much. <clears throat> yep. Really bad CGI. We're, st- we're starting to develop a, a bit of a, There's a trend, trend here. It's <laughs> bad dialogue, it's somewhat bad. interesting story, and then really bad CGI that just is like, all right, I don't care about this. <laughs> if, if there's something that goes well with bad dialogue, it's bad CGI. So, so yeah, I mean, they, they try to pass the whole fire, woods, animal thing off as a bad dream, right? But they keep seeing those guys with the dark robes outside, you know, like John's ran out there now, you know, trying to catch up to him. And like, the rock is a real thing, you know, that's kind of the funny thing about the rock is it just shows that it's not like a hallucination or anything because they keep getting these black stones. So you see a bunch of men in black in the woods at night. You run after him with baseball bat and extra large mag light. <laughs> Probably not the choice I would have made, but that's Nick. That's Nick Cage's choice. Hit the tree a couple times with the bat. He's not scaring anyone. Well, the next day, uh, John goes to visit Lucinda's family. Um, you know, kind of is real creepy, like acting like a stalker, following them to, you know, the museum down in the city. Yeah, very creepy. Like he is straight up stalking them. But I guess it's okay because he's taking his own kid with him, so it's not as creepy as just you know Nick Cage stalking a single mother and her daughter. Yeah, that's a terrible life uh, tip. If you're gonna stalk <laughs> a woman, bring your kid along. It looks less creepy. You know, and it's funny because, like, I don't know what I expected when, you know, so the two kids kind of get along and they start talking. And, of course, the girl, um, Lucinda's daughter's daughter, Abby, you know, talks the exact same way that Caleb talks in that kind of, like, unnatural, too grown up for a child to say dialogue. Yeah, they're both, they're both very, like, precocious. Intelligent. Like, and, yeah. Yeah. Or that that's how they are portrayed. You know, they're they're both like you said. They 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 don't talk the way that, you know, elementary school aged children would talk to each other. But nobody has a East Coast accent, aren't they on the East Coast? It's supposed yeah, to be that's Boston. MIT, right? It should be like. Do you think this is supposed to be Boston then? Lobster. Boston area, I would assume. Boston. Yeah. 
But yeah, nobody, nobody's got the East Coast accent. Well, they didn't film most of this in Australia. <laughs> That's uh. I guess it's hard to find a Boston accent in uh, Sydney. Yeah, I don't even know what part of Australia, but yeah. But I know they have some very cringeworthy small talk while at the museum, while the kids are bonding. So Lucinda's daughter is named Diana, played by Rose Byrne. But she's from Australia. And... Was Nick Cage just on vacation? Was he doing the Adam Sandler? Was he just like, you know, I want to go to Australia for a while and do a movie or what? I mean, I this just know. seems... I, I know that Alex Proyas, the director, is also an Australian filmmaker, so... Hmm. From what I know, I think, like, he had been working on this as, like, a screenplay for a while. Or somebody else had kind of had, like, a short story, something going on, and then it got developed into this. But, yeah, after... Uh, John talks to Diana. He like freaks her out by saying something about Lucinda, who, you know, Diana is obviously not willing to talk about anything with her family or, you know, her dad. Cause, um, yeah, he like tries to confront her and it goes poorly, very, very poorly. Yeah, I think he brings up the prophecy pretty much right away, like the numbers and everything. Yeah, I don't know if I would lead with that. If you're trying to like talk to this this woman about her dead like perceived as crazy mother maybe don't lead with hey i got this thing from 50 years ago out of the ground that your mom wrote a bunch of numbers on that are now corresponding to people dying maybe leading in a little heavy you just you just keep talking and don't don't let her get a word and just keep talking then no i mean she'll understand yeah that might work but i mean we're talking about a movie that's like over two hours they could have spent a little more time on him like you know explaining the situation than like blindsiding her at the museum see what he should have done is waited until she was in the car with him and then just pulled his handgun out and started his spiel <laughs> <laughs> let me tell you something no that's not what happened though no she get she drives away in her car and just you know that's the end of that so now john is like looking at this next disaster and using his latitude and longitude numbers you know that he recently figured out to pinpoint this one to new york city and yeah so naturally he goes there i might have found a goof while somebody on the internet found a goof oh wasn't you well i guess you found it so it's yours now so with these latitude and longitude coordinates in the numbers one of the problems is like you need a negative sign for longitude and if you think about it even more, like when they had the 9-11, you know, they had the date and they had 2,000, um, what was the number? It was 2,000, like 900. 29.96. But the problem is like only so many of those people died in the Twin Towers and then the others died in Pennsylvania, but that's included in the number. So it's like different coordinates and. You know, it makes it... You're thinking far too deeply about well, it. Well, they could have just ditched the location. You know, because that's, like, the part of the movie I think that ruins it the most is, like, him being present yeah, I think they have ridiculous to f- CGI disasters. They have to find a reason to, like, I mean, obviously, why make a disaster where movie things are happening. not going to tell it, but... What would bring him to this... What would bring him to the train station, though? could have been instead of going to the museum you know he could have had that all happen at the same point and that brought diana onto his side of like he said something right before it happened like hey today something bad's gonna happen well the fact is that didn't happen 
and it probably would have made it a better movie, but no, that didn't happen. Instead, we got loads of bad CGI. Before, like, the subway crash, one of the things you notice is, like, every time they show the city in this movie, like, everyone's just wearing black. You know, maybe it's a thing. I haven't been around, you know, business people at lunchtime in New York City recently, but... No? (laughs) Does everybody wear black? Is that just what we do now? I don't know. I also haven't been around business people in New York City at lunchtime recently. Rob, have you? Also have not. (laughs) That's what the Australians think is business is lunchtime in uh, New York City at lunch. And yeah, you know what I mean? So (laughs) I just Joe Biden it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, some mental gaffes going on here. So before the subway, uh, like there's this whole fake out the movie does where He's following a suspicious person. Well, first he calls the the police on the payphone, the phone booth. Well, it sounds like he's making a threat to the police. Like, he's saying how, why... (laughs) It doesn't sound like he is. He is making a threat. He's calling in, like, a a bomb threat, basically. (laughs) People are going to die. Shut this place down. Well, and, like, it's one thing to call in, like, a threat. Like, I bet that's a pretty typical thing. But uh, then when he, like, is talking to that one police officer, like, what do you mean you didn't hear about my threat? Like, <laughs> yeah, way to, way to show your hand. <laughs> Something's going to happen. He, he chases after the suspicious guy through the subway. And like I said, they fake us out because it says nothing to do with it. It's not like a, a bomb threat or terrorist plot or anything like that. The guy just has, like, bootleg DVDs. But... The disaster that's happening is this subway train crash, and it reminded me a lot of the movie Speed, you know, where a subway jumps the tracks and, like, goes barreling through a station. From city to the next city in the next state. (laughs) (laughs) And those trains were going way faster than what a subway goes. Like, this looked like they were going, like, 70, 80 miles an hour, and it's like, no way. Yeah, the light rails go like 20. High-speed rail. <laughs> I don't know what the top speed on New York City subway is. I think uh, I think Chicago's do like 50 or 60, though, or can. Well, Chicago's like kind of everywhere, right? Like the L is above ground. Yeah, I've only ridden the, uh, the Amtrak. <clears throat> well, those do like 80, right? Yeah, an Amtrak can go pretty fast. Somehow this, this whole like subway crash, the light rail or the commuter rail, speed, even though it was made, you know, a good ten years after the fact. Like the CGI didn't do them any benefits to like. Yeah, I assume that speed was like a small model that was built and like practical effects and things. That's so. That's actually what the, what I didn't understand the most. Like they could have probably saved a whole bunch of money and done a lot of this with like practical effects. By right? switching to Geico. <laughs> but they didn't instead they used bad 2009 cgi like really bad cgi sparks <laughs> it's Pulled a... it's awful it's nothing you know short when of it awful. when it really pissed me off i think was when we got the kill cam you know it was the point of view of the train crushing people in the crowd and it's just like 
why do this? It's like, you know, <laughs> just being um, shocking and grotesque for the sake of like getting val like, you know, to keep the audience's attention. And it just seems really cheap. Yeah. So the train, the train that went off the rails was actually another train coming towards them. Yeah, their train, I think, was stopped, right? Because they got on it at the station. Yep. And yeah, didn't didn't you say this was lunchtime? Seemed like it. it. Okay. I don't you know, think the you'd sun be able to was up in the sky, from, so it was like an afternoon. Yeah, running from car to car, all the way, you know, from end to end on the subway might be a little difficult at that time. Yeah. Well, as the dust starts to settle, we see, you know, this like you know, badass kind of aloof look on Nick Cage's face as he walks out of, like, the smoke. And, you know, it's real slow motion, like, stylistic kind of looking up to the U.S. flag. I just assume in kind of like, uh, I don't want to say homage to, like, how 9-11 was, but, you know, that's definitely imagery that invokes a memory of 9-11. Yeah, they're definitely going for, like, the the very patriotic, you know, like, tug at the nah, I don't know, not the heartstrings but like go for the the feels you know yeah i don't know if it's like patriotism or maybe just uh remembering a serious event so it makes the movie seem more serious but yeah invoking emotion i think is what it was meant to do so he goes back to diana after the disaster and she's got you know kind of come on board you know he tells the story of his wife dying in the fire and you know how he expected that he would feel things after you know like they say you should feel like if your lover is in trouble or dies or something and you know he said he felt nothing he believes in nothing he believes in nothing nothing. (laughs) you know now he's saying that the list of numbers is giving him kind of faith in believing in something really cringy the dialogue yeah. This whole section is right up there with the CGI that preceded it. I would ask you what you would do with uh prophecy of like future disaster, but I think we'll save that for later on. <laughs> John and Diana then drive together through this like deep woods at night to Lucinda's old like trailer home. Yeah, they go inside. It's the first time that she's been there in like decades right i think she says looks too nice (laughs) yeah well it looks nicer than it should and it's also just full of like all sorts of stuff stuff that would have been stolen (laughs) ransacked yeah i don't think anyone's gonna take the 30 year old tube tv but i think like that's true they would have taken it 30 years ago something would have happened to it it wouldn't be like in a pristine (laughs) condition Short of the dust, it looked like people had just been living there. Well, it's full of all sorts of crazy shit, right? I mean, they go back into the room. Yeah. And, like, it's got Lucinda's newspaper clippings. Her conspiracy corner with all the, like, stories pasted up on the wall. There's black stones on the floor. Didn't see any red string connecting them all together. Yeah, so you know, the as they're issue, like walking like, through hey, this, the trailer, this Diana crazy, starts, you know, something, like, going you know, into the actual details about how her mom overdosed and was hearing like no, it was missing horrible that, things, you know, that, you know, voices whispering in her head, which I thought was 
again, we're like, they're trying, you know, they're invoking like, uh, you know, she could have been crazy or something like that. But obviously like all the disasters and the numbers and this stuff together, like, um, you know, I think it's beyond a doubt now that it's like real, at least in this, you know, story. Yeah, I think as far as the movie goes, like, there's no arguing at this point, right? Like, there's no just putting it off as Nick Cage being a a lonely drunk that put a bunch of numbers together. Like, it's it's. But then it's interesting because like they never accepted. really question like the voices that they're hearing, you know, the whispering, which these two people, you know, Nick Cage and um, Diana, they both are not hearing the actual voices whispering. It's been Lucinda and caleb you know that have been hearing it abby and caleb oh yeah that's right thank you well and and lucinda too at the beginning oh yeah yeah they like yeah that that's right because you know while uh lucinda was overdosing diana was saying how she would always hear voices which made her seem you know like schizophrenia or something like that but it you know Diana feels really bad that she never really like listened to her, but that's a hard thing to say too because like a lot of people are schizophrenics and do hear voices and they're not real. But this one time where your mom happened to be like a prophet of the future. <laughs> <laughs> so, amongst all this numerology and, you know, the dark stones, we get our first bit of I'm going to just say christian uh symbolism and foreshadowing yeah it it takes a hard turn real quick it seems like a hard well not a hard turn but like a turn that then takes a dive (laughs) in like a a different direction that hadn't been hinted at at all before they show the impossible wheel with um god and the sun and you know this is all like symbolism of you know like angels and chariots and things like that that are just like i said part of you know christian religion and after like looking at all the you know things that are up on the wall when they looks at like the impossible wheel they like really stare at it so like between that and the sun you know that some of these things are going to be like foreshadowed in the future but before we can go any further We've got our next visit by the creepy uh, whisper people again. They're back and they're everywhere. They're in the six foot tall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're kind of like all over the place outside. And once again, Nick Cage goes and out goes out and like you know tries to chase them down. Like going through the Honey I Shrunk the Kids movie set. Got to make my way from the house to the front lawn. Right, that was the whole Honey I Shrunk the Cut. Honey I Shrunk the Kids was just getting through the lawn. I think it was the backyard. Yeah, the grass. From backyard to the house. He's just going the opposite way. So he catches up with the uh, creepy albino dude. Dude turns around and faces John, opens his mouth, and. Shiner. <laughs> it's as if a flashbang goes off in his mouth. <laughs> Bright, then dark, and he's gone. Easy to hide in the tall grass, though. Yeah, the movie. So at this point, the movie's building really quickly, right? There's a lot of tension, and like you're kind of expecting it to sort of begin to wrap up. Uh, but at this point, I think we're like an hour and ten minutes in. So we're really setting up for a, a long decline. <laughs> so before the plane crash and the subway accident, 
the list had said that there were three more dates and three more disasters. But the last one, you know, on the end of the list, a lot of the time they would just keep seeing EE. And they figured out that EE meant the number of people that would die. And it was an abbreviation for like everyone else, which I don't know. That seems like kind of a big thing. Like it would have been pretty cool that like early on they realized that the end of the list is like ultimate catastrophe and, you know, extinction of humanity. I think that would have been better, like to put that out earlier in the movie. But yeah, now we have a long Long, long descent. Slow descent. Yeah, I agree, though. I think the whole EE thing was kind of a cop-out. You know, they could have introduced that earlier on or showed it or something, but instead it was just like, oh, what's this? And I actually, <clears throat> again, I didn't find this as our other goof earlier, but the internet says that the earlier shot of the note, the last couple digits are threes, not E's. So they botched that up, too. Well, they covered that. There was, like, some dialogue of, like, sometimes you would write E's as threes or something like that. Oh, do we just didn't want to reshoot that like, scene. Oh, and I feel like I remember seeing a version of the list in the early part of the movie where the end, you could tell that the number was a approximation because it was, like, seven point something billion. Yeah, like I it was a big number at the I end. Didn't play <laughs> enough, I didn't pay enough attention to actually, like, notice what was what, but it wasn't consistent, apparently. <laughs> Which is not surprising. Yeah, this whole movie is written more like a horror movie than a disaster movie. I don't know what it is. It's written like a disaster movie and maybe played as a horror movie. I don't know. Cause so after the the creepers and the mouth light, when the guy just like disappears with the shiner, right? Like the they go through these new theories the next day, and like the sun is on fire essentially. It's flaring up. <laughs> yeah. So the whole the whole concept is the sun is like going to put out so much radiation that that it consumes and kills everything on the earth right so they're going to go hide underground i don't know this this whole part just kind of in a matter of 10 minutes goes from like a mystery kind of not sure what's going on kind of thing to a the sun is going to kill us all yeah john is uh going to his work to see his sun data you know and um if the foreshadowing of him talking about the sun, him working with the sun, Abby coloring in the uh, God Wheel Sun picture, um, when he starts his like presentation about how in Pleiades, which is a star cluster, there was a flare on one of the sun or stars, and he talks about like a hundred micro Tesla, you know, all this part of the movie is where the science starts getting real sloppy. Because the number's right. Like, 100 micro Tesla, you know, is a lot stronger than Earth's magnetic field, which is... This is all a bit out of my field of reach. I do not know. Oh, I know. Yeah, I know it's smaller than 100 micro Tesla. 25 to 65 micro Tesla. So, yeah, the number isn't that crazy when he talks about this other solar flare, but... When he starts saying how it's going to end the world and how we should go down into caves and stuff like that to survive, you know, the radiation going through, you know, miles of rock and stuff like this, it's pretty far-fetched. Yeah, that's kind of the plan, right? They're, they're going to go hide underground, or that's what we're led to believe. But first, they have to go see Dad, Preacher Dad. And Preacher Dad isn't very interested in hiding underground. But he's got ten minutes to decide. <laughs> John gives him ten minutes. 
get some supplies and let's go. But he's not going anywhere tonight or any night. And then John goes upstairs and finds Caleb writing numbers on a piece of paper on his desk. Caleb doesn't respond to John, so John pulls the paper away and Caleb just scratches the numbers into the desk with his hands. Oh yeah, angry high school style, carving right into the desk. And then when he comes to, we get some more cringy dialogue. I believe he says, did I do that? <laughs> I'm not going to put in Steve Urkel saying Oh, that. you have to. <laughs> So he picks this time to, you know, open the present from his wife, because why not? You know, this is all going to, in his mind, get burned up by the sun. Seems like a, a good time to, to open this box you've been obsessing over for however long. And the present is a forever locket with a picture already in it of him and his wife and his son. Yeah, and like you said, he... You know, he tell, talks to his dad, but his dad's saying how he's not, you know, going to go hiding underground and, you know, he's God's got a plan for me. But one of the nice things I did notice is we started getting, like, the interference on the phone. You know, he gets cut off from his dad. And, you know, this is, like, one of the real effects of, like, a solar storm you would actually get. Maybe not, though, before it happens. You know, that's not exactly how solar flares and stuff work. <laughs> But I don't know. At this point, John gets the idea to go to the school and get the door that Lucinda scratched off her last thing. Yeah, what the hell is this all about? Like, come on. Like, speaking of, like, cringeworthy parts, you know, it's like, let's go resurrect this old door from a, a schooler from 50 years ago. Commit a little like, B&E and a little door theft. It seems a little far-fetched. Well, do you, like... He's going at it with the paint or the heat gun trying to strip it. And it's like, you would never fucking be able to like even try to do that that fast. Like <laughs> I've never tried, but I don't really think that would work. No, I mean, no. <laughs> Here we can paint some numbers on the door and then put a couple coats of paint over it and then put it in a time capsule. Open that up later. 50 years. We'll check it out we'll, in 50 years. You know, use a 50 year old hairdryer to fix it. <laughs> so as he's scraping the paint off the door, comes out and he notices uh diana's gone abby and caleb they're all gone diana took off and i think right around now we also start getting like official warnings from the weather service right there's like solar flares like warnings like warning people to go underground and stuff yeah then you also have caleb and lucinda's like the the family tries running like matt said earlier and the kids claim that the creepers the the smooth stone whatever we're calling them (laughs) guys are whispering to them it's like they're they both you know kind of what we heard earlier in the movie are are hearing voices from these things <laughs> people whatever whatever we're calling the the smooth stone people the yeah the creepy albino smooth stone givers <laughs> yeah yeah them so yeah they uh john takes off after him and on diana's way to the caves she stops at the gas station where they have gas and outdoor cashiers or walk-up window, <laughs> which is, you know, the only place I've seen that is East Coast. I'm sure they have them elsewhere, but kind of cool. I've never seen one. I'm sure they exist. I've just never encountered one. I think it's funny. Everyone's starting to loot and cashiers all talking about how... They are going to wake up tomorrow morning feeling pretty stupid. <laughs> so... Yeah, Diana. She calls John and says, yeah, we got to save the children. 
we're going to the caves. She turns around and the creepy albino stone givers are in her car and take off with the kids. So what does she do? She steals a Jeep. The best vehicle to steal in a, uh, a bad time. Yeah, I would agree. <laughs> so she frantically is chasing this other car and ends up in a fatal accident, getting T-boned by a semi. John finds himself at that gas station where she was just at and asks if, you know, the gas station attendant has seen, you know, this woman driving this car. And he says, yeah, her car got stolen. She stole someone else's car and they both took off that way. Sounds like something out of Grand Theft Auto. Yeah, so John takes off after her, you know, heading that way and finds her and the wreck and everything. And But there's no kids. They're not there. So, yeah. My, uh, <clears throat> my notes for this part of the movie are a little lacking. I have... Hilariously bad CGI everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, toward the end here, I really I really started to start not paying a whole lot of attention. Things really get a little rough at the end. But yeah, so he, he takes off from the, the wreck and then goes to Lucinda's mobile home and finds Diana's car with all the car doors open, lights on, everything like that. She was at the gas station. Might as well leave it running. You, know, you got some time. But then what he sees... All these black stones on the ground there. As he's, yeah, the he's same woods. smooth smooth stones we've been seeing everywhere. Now there's piles of them. A whole bunch of them. And then out of the woods come Caleb and Abby. And they're like not freaking out at all. They're just kind of like calm and saying that the smooth stone dudes have just been like talking to them, right? They talk to us in our heads. Whisper like. What? Yeah, I don't know. When I was watching this too, I was really starting to get kind of confused. Like, who are the creepers? What are they doing this? Like, what what's the what's the end goal here? Like, how are we wrapping this up? And I, I kind of was feeling like, oh, it's like, I guess they're aliens, maybe? Yeah, I was still lost too. I'm like, hmm. No worries. Some more bad CGI will clear things up when the uh, alien ship comes in. Or whatever that thing was that descends out of the sky. The uncut cubic zircornia. That's the one. <laughs> it's terrible. All of it. I mean, it's all supposed to be like super grandiose and like, oh, look at all the effects, but it's just, it's Absolutely. bad. Really, really bad. So, yeah, well, Caleb and Abby, they tell John that we got to go. You can't come. And John has faith and lets them go. Yeah, basically, the, the alien or like, you know, the the things tell them that Caleb has been chosen. And they want to, uh, you know, take the chosen ones and, and start over, essentially. And, like, this is kind of where it gets back to the the whole, like, Christian theme that Matt was talking about earlier. Because of the next scene that we cut to after the ship goes away. Is many ships coming in for a landing on some planet with bluebird skies. So are they aliens or are they angels? Uh, I think kind of both. I mean, it's definitely, like, a very heavily christian theme right with like taking i don't know <laughs> everything they said earlier combined with like how the the final scene ends is definitely an angel vibe but they're not like any angels i've seen portrayed in any other movies so i don't i don't know maybe maybe both because like the final scene is like the kids are on this like new planet right and like they're basically adam and eve like what the fuck is this out of nowhere well it's like the kids and the bunnies you know they're carrying to restart that, the rabbits had me confused well the rabbits are a symbolism that those two kids are going to be procreating like like rabbits ah, like like rabbits <laughs> hmm. that's the analogy I, 
I had missed that. And they weren't the only ones, because there was other spaceships flying cubic zirconias. Adam and Eve 2, 3, and 4. Adam of Eve N. <laughs> they want to really get it started this time. <laughs> Don't have time to wait. But yeah, it's kind of crazy, because after the impossible wheel-style spaceship leaves, you know, John just sleeps I on had the not ground noticed. crying. I really sort of stop paying attention at the end and when he wakes up you can tell like the sun is definitely a different type of star now i guess i didn't either because like they show him driving in his car you know the radio doesn't work (laughs) so you gotta have your cd of end of the world classical music and like as he's driving around you can see like the auroras and all that like you know like i said real effects maybe of a solar flare or solar storm but yeah, the like actual CGI showing like the destruction of all these cities and things is so like unrealistic. After watching this movie, I looked up the science behind it, and one of the headlines that struck me was, "Can you sue a movie for how bad its science is?" <laughs> That's not how Michael Bay style movie works. You know, everything from when he said like the radiation will go a mile underground and all that like none of that is true there's lots of cool stuff you can do with a solar flare but it would be more of like a civilization collapses give me me all the cgi really quickly because communications and things like that i think it would be cool if they did show like satellites you know slowly fall from the sky because the you know change in geomagnetic properties of the earth and all the things affected by it yeah no slow burns for hollywood they want like exciting you know action so between the bad cgi and the christian themes you know the movie ends and boy i don't know about you but i had some strong feelings about this one Yeah, I think uh, we'll do ratings now. (laughs) So, I wanted to like it. It had Nicolas Cage in it. Granted, is an MIT professor, which I don't find believable. Especially now knowing, like, the content of it and how it's, like, this world-ending disaster where no one survives. And it's kind of a dark ending. Like, if you took the kids out of it, it's humanity just getting extinct. So it's cool. It's different than most disaster movies, you know, going for no rescue. (laughs) Instead of a shutdown, it's just a restart. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, my rating is only a 4 out of 10 because I think it could have been better in so many ways. The, you know, symbolism for all the Christian things and then the way that it plays out. Like, there's a lot of opportunities they could have taken i think that would have made it better you know less horror movie more disaster movie but man does the cgi just kill anything left like it's worth seeing because of how bad it is yeah i'll go next um what you said times 10 i at the beginning i liked it like i really really thought it was going to be okay you know i was intrigued with the whole 1950s flashback with lucinda doing weird shit and then it just takes a steep dive. The, the, the bad CGI, the terrible dialogue, the... I mean, we're talking bad dialogue for Nicolas Cage. That's pretty low. 
<laughs> it's just it's not good um i'm saying like a three and a half to a four out of ten it's just it's terrible the the ending couldn't have come soon enough it, it was bad it was it was too long there's the the plot just ugh, no no good wow i give it a five <laughs> but i, I also was that after like the it, first that, that much was that after the first viewing or the subsequent viewings rob I was constant. Just average, yeah, you say. Five. It stayed five. But yeah, just I mean, you know. It did it started out okay. Yeah. That's about it. If they would have not done the the terrible CGI and just like gone for a couple practical effects and like maybe just a little more like suspense instead of action, it could have gone up a couple points. But the, the, like you said, Matt, the the CGI just it drags it down. It's really, really bad. So I think we're all in agreement. It's average or below average. And with that, did you have a favorite character? Pat? I did. It's Dr. Bro. And only because of the term PH double D. I love how he said it's peer reviewed. <laughs> That's it. That's the only reason. Otherwise, no, I had no favorite character. Uh, maybe, maybe Nick Cage's character because the way he pours a drink. Just how about you, Rob? My favorite character was the gas station attendant. <laughs> I know a gas station attendant like this. You know, they're always telling you like, ah, don't believe the hype of the news. Everything's gonna be fine. That's how all gas station, you know, people are. Well, I'll say my favorite character is the old lady teacher, uh, Miss Taylor. Because she's definitely gotten cooler as she's gotten older. And as you see her making her own hard iced tea, props to, you know, old lady day drinking. And well, the next uh, question I have is, could something like this happen in real life? And the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> Which part? Just, just Full no. Stop. The answer is no. <laughs> we, we're going to hit it on a couple levels, Rob. Predictions of the future. The closest thing I can think of of like a lot of predictions was like that Nostradamus stuff that was popular a couple of years ago. Well, 10 years ago. <laughs> and all that was like when you really read the original material, you're like, this is total like coincidence. Nothing real here. But the solar flare stuff like, yeah, there's been some solar storms, but nothing that's like you know, cosmic death ray scorching the earth of like buildings and things <laughs> clean. It's always been, oh, it affects the climate or, oh, it affects the geomagnetic field. And, you know, we end up with increased risk of like UV damage and things like that. You know, these aren't um, usually fast, quick things. They're slow, you know, sorts of things. Even when he said like, oh, Dad, you know how it's been warm lately? That's because the sun's getting warmer. It's like, if that was the case, people would be freaking out very quickly because that would mean that, like, everything's going to be dead very soon if it actually did it that quickly. So we'd have enough time to drive to that mine in Copper Harbor? Yeah, I don't know what this movie teaches us. If caves are going to be our holdout for when the sun <laughs> goes super hot like that, but... uh yeah, I think that anything the sun does is going to be fairly slow. Even a solar flare, you get quite a few hours because it doesn't go at the speed of light. You know, it has to actually, the charged particles have to travel through space and it takes hours. 
Well, but good did news we, is I'm not too worried about it. Yeah, did we learn anything from this movie about disasters? This was our new question to ask. And no. No, I'm going to go I think no. the only thing we know, it did teach us one thing, is that you can't count on streaming services or the radio in the event of a disaster <laughs> to listen to your soundtrack while everything burns. You need to have a CD or some sort of stable media in your car for that moment. And there's the reason to still have an optical drive. <laughs> All right, well, now it is time to select our next movie. Come on, I higher have our rating. List. <laughs> I have our list of disaster movies. Uh, this list is pretty much just a, you know, most popular of the disaster movies. Right now, we've got about 100 on the list. And I am going to select a random number to determine our next movie. Generating. The number is 17. Drum roll, please. Oh my. Oh. <laughs> number 17. San Andreas. <laughs> oh no, yeah. Yeah, you know. 1979 or whatever it is. <laughs> or no, is that the newer one? Oh, that's actually a very good point. Because I think they made an old one, right? No, the newer one is like Los Angeles or Battleford. No, what is it? I think it's the old one. No. It's the new one? This yeah. is the one. This is the one with the rock driving a, a speedboat through a sinking building. It's so much speed. Oh, boat. God. Um, okay. In the aftermath of a massive earthquake in California, a rescue chopper pilot makes a dangerous journey with his ex-wife across the state in order to rescue who plays, his daughter. Who plays this rescue chopper pilot? That's uh, Dwayne oh, of Johnson. of course it is. Dwayne the Rock Johnson. <laughs> Why did I not recognize it when I looked at the list? I think I have them listed with directors on there. Huh. Okay. I actually saw this movie in the theaters. I have seen this movie almost every time it comes on TV. <laughs> it is on TV quite a bit. So we've all seen it. It's time for a double feature. I think so. Yeah, so I think that covers it. Well, I'm Matt Bluma. I'm Rob Fauché. And I'm Pat McCaffrey. And we've reached How another dead end. Don't forget to follow. 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 God help the editor. Our theme music is Dead End by Brainstory. 